Before we get started, regretfully, I have to inform you that we had some technical errors during our interview with Brad Andres. I have to take responsibility for the bulk of them, as I was recording at my parents' house, home for the holidays, and the Wi-Fi was being challenging at best. The audio quality is overall fine, but my connection was coming in and out. Believe it or not, this makes conducting an interview really difficult and forced the interview into more of a question and answer session than the discussion format we typically strive for on this podcast. Then, suddenly, in the middle of the interview, the web service we used to record just died, and we were unable to get back. As a result, the interview cuts off abruptly. Obviously, this is really frustrating to have happen during a big interview and moment for our show and our listeners. Nonetheless, I absolutely wanted to put out the best episode we could with the content we were able to record, and there's still a ton of great insight here. So anyways, with that in mind, here's the episode. I really hope you enjoy it. Archons. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake and Sir Dan. Welcome back to another episode of Sanctimonious. This is Jake. So excited to be back in the studio with my wonderful co-host, Dan Johnson. Dan, how's it going? Good. Welcome back, Jake. Thank you very much. And this is an extra special, super exciting episode because we are joined with the one, the only lead developer of the game we love, Keyforge, Brad Andres. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. I know we've been trying to set this up for a while, so it's great to finally be on the show. <laughs> we are delighted to have you. Uh, normally, uh, as of course, I'm sure... Uh, being such a loyal listener of our show, Brad, you know that we typically start things off with a weekly inspiration where we say one thing that spires, inspired us about Keyforge this past week. But I know you're a really busy guy and we wanted to, if it's okay with you, just jump right into the questions to sort of maximize your time with us. That sounds great. Uh, I'd be more than happy to. Great. Hopefully, hopefully what we talk about will be a little inspiring. <laughs> Excellent. Because <laughs> we have a lot of questions. Yeah, and, and whatever we get to or not, whatever you want to expand upon or not, uh, that, you know, it's fine. We're going to do this totally free form, but I think what might be helpful, uh, people know you as Keyforge's lead developer, but maybe you could just talk for a second about uh, what that really means day to day, how how you're involved with this game. Yeah, so uh, in the, the the simplest way to do it is I am kind of the, the guiding vision behind the future development of Keyforge, um, which is a really lofty way to put my title. Really, it's I have a, a great team of people that help realize uh, the vision I have for, for the game. Uh, I work with uh, Danny Schaefer and Aaron Haltum, who are my uh, developers underneath me. Um, and I typically take a design-focused role for Keyforge. Uh, thinking about what the next set looks like, what the next two sets look like into the future, you know, working off of our larger multi-year plan. Uh, so that means that I'm coming up with the ideas for the sets. 
uh, talking with our creative department and helping them brainstorm stuff for new houses, and then working with our other developers to actually develop content uh, for each of the upcoming sets. Typically, we'll pair off uh, one, one developer and myself being the design push behind a set. And then those individual developers will take a set and they'll run it through playtesting and all those all that good development stuff while I oversee and give them advice and feedback and uh, help them mature as developers as well. That's fantastic. Sounds like awesome. a really cool job <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of fun. I, I know we have quite a few questions about like how that development process actually goes. but I want to hate. Hey, yeah. I've got a hard-hitting oh. question. You ready yeah. for this? Are you prepared for this, Brad? This is the hard-hitting uh, questions. Ready. Why ban the most powerful and popular house in the game from set three? What did Sanctum ever do to you? You know, uh, I've lost a lot of games to Sanctum, especially, uh, you know, Virtuous Works, but... It's so virtuous. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta say that, like, you know, what's what's not in one set may very well be in another set and all of your favorites are not going away forever. Like I love Sanctum. They're, they're a wonderful house for the needs of what set three wanted to be. They just, they just weren't right, but you know, uh, they're definitely not gone forever for the good of the many. So I guess what I'm hearing is that it wasn't a personal attack on this podcast, which I'm <laughs> glad about. I, I know, I know people were sort of assuming that since we were growing quite powerful. No, we, we, we knew Sanctum was coming out of set three before the game was even released. Holy smokes. <laughs> Shots fired. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm just interested to hear a little bit more about yourself. Uh, I'm curious what sort of your gaming origins are. If, if you'd be interested in talking like what kind of drew you to game design and game development in the first place. Sure. Uh, well... I mean, the story really kind of starts when I was seven years old, and I've told this tale on a couple other podcasts, but so I'll keep it, I'll keep it a little brief. But, you know, when I was seven, I started playing a game. You might have heard of it. It's called Magic the Gathering. What? And, uh, hmm. and you know, I just kind of fell in love with card games at that point. I didn't really understand that this was like a whole world that was, you know, opening up and existing. And so I saw it through a very narrow window for a long time. But... When I got older and I was around 16, you know, I've been playing card games for forever. And that was kind of when I was like, okay, well, you know, I can make my own games. And so I just kind of started just in earnest uh, making amateur designs and had playing, making, my, making my friends play them and stuff. And then <laughs> in college, I wrote a lot of different like party LARPs for my friends. So it was always just about like making my friends laugh and making them have a good time. But, you know... As I was coming out of college, I was thinking about doing professorship. I have a degree in uh, geology and paleontology. Uh, and so I was thinking really heavily about that. But I was like, ah, you know, I don't know about academia right now. I'm going to take a year off. And it so happens that uh, I got a job during that year off working for Fantasy Flight Games. And their, their retail outlet was called the Event Center at the time. The Fantasy Flight Event Center. It's the game center now. But uh, I started working there and got to know some of the designers and told them, oh, yeah, I make my own stuff, too. And I uh, started working with them, playtesting for the Star Wars LCG. And eventually a position opened up and uh, Nate French actually encouraged me to apply for it. And I did. And, well, the rest is history. Here I am 
almost nine years later. Very nice. Well done. Well, way to get that foot in the door. All right. So let's just get into the actual Keyforge questions. As I look at this, I realize that I've heard those podcasts. We've answered a few of these. So this one comes from our good friend, Ben Merck. Um, he gave you a big hug at uh, Indy, I believe. So yeah, Yes, he did. <laughs> Shout out to Manic Merck. Uh, when designing a set in Keyforge, do you attempt to balance each house's power level or you design with the intent to highlight the power of some houses and leave others in support roles? You know, it. it I like to think of each house as being this this bigger thing that you're only seeing a piece of because, you know, your, your house representation in any singular set only shows off part of the overall color pie, if you will, for a house. Now, some elements of those color, color pie are a more support role and some are a more active role. And it is my goal to make sure that both of those exist in some way, shape or form because it adds a lot more variety onto the deck end. When you open up a new deck, how, how you analyze it, like, oh, how is the logos working in this deck? Is it more of a support role? Now, some houses, in particular in a set, may have their support role more pronounced than the other ones, or it's simply just better and more powerful than the other options. Uh, so, like... We, we, you know, to answer the question more succinctly, we consider both aspects of a house really strongly, and we want to show off them you know, both, because again, variety is the key. But I don't think we like subconscious, like, we don't consciously make one supremely better than the other, or like be like, oh, this house is designated to a support role in this set. So what is the goal then regarding balance just overall? So deck to deck, I mean, net, not every deck can be on equal footing with every other deck, but what's kind of the goal there and kind of creating that range of balance for these unique decks? Yeah, we like to, we like to think of the, the spectrum of decks as being a bell curve, that there are some decks on the low end, the, the, you know, the, the bad decks, they're going to exist. And it's something we've known from the, the very beginning that that was going to be a thing, which is part of why reversal is, is a format <laughs> that we want to support. It is a fun one. And we also knew that there was going to be decks on the high end, ones that just were, were so much better and were like insanely good, which is part of why we want Archon to be part of the, the environment. We also knew that a lot of decks were going to fall somewhere in the middle. And so from a design perspective, we focused on making that middle ground larger, that it would encompass more decks. So you're more likely to get a deck toward the middle of the pack because it means that more decks, one, on that level can compete with each other, and two, means the matches in general are more fair. It also means there's that middle ground of just like, okay, well, this is where our testing field enters. Now, that being said, like it's super exciting to get a deck on either end, and it can be very fun for that variety of experience. So, like understanding and, and, and embracing the fact that all different types of decks, power level wise, were going to exist, has been an essential part of the Keyforge design process from day one. 
Very nice. And I know we have a lot of discussions on our Discord about finding that perfect reversal deck. And it's almost harder finding a reversal deck than it is to find that elite deck. I mean, it's really easy to see what an elite deck is, but it's sometimes really hard to recognize if a bad deck is really actually bad enough. <laughs> and exactly. it's its own kind of fun. Yeah, no, it it, it like it's such an interesting format and one that I really enjoy playing. It really does have that element of not only do you have to find the deck, but you really have to understand and parse your way through a completely different metagame. Because we know what's bad in the context of decks that are good, but what's bad in the context of a bunch of decks that are trying to be bad? It's a very different question. Exactly. And then how do you play against it? You have to know your own the, own, the actual weaknesses of that deck that you can exploit with another bad deck. Yeah. So anyway, that's just yeah. to say, very, it's really <laughs> exciting that that's uh, continuing to be supported. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you talk about uh, your love for that format as well. Yeah, I think it's it's one of, it's an important part of the spectrum because you know each each purchase of a KeyForge deck is a value proposition for our customer, and if they were left they were left with a feeling that they had been you know fleeced of ten dollars because this deck couldn't be played anywhere, I'd feel awful. <laughs> and so I, I really do think that reversal is you know, part of that, that ecosystem that makes Keyforge so fun and interesting. That very well said. Excellent. So the next question we have is, is uh, getting a little bit more into uh, house identities and, and how it feels to play different houses, diff- trying to do different things. You talked a little bit about how there's kind of a spectrum within each individual house. Um, but I was curious if like how that actually weaves its way into the development process. And is there, you know, do you have internal debates? Like, should this really be a logos card or is that affect more, you know, a better fit with star Alliance, for instance, or something else? Oh, we, we definitely do because on the design process, a lot of times we'll be designing for categories of effects rather than, like sitting down and be like, let's design all the logos cards in the set. It's more like, okay, let's design a whole bunch of board wipe cards and maybe not even give them a house while we're designing it, just designing the base effect, getting those, those base ideas out. And so, you know, house identity is really important. And so what we do is we have a master house identity, like, worksheet that we typically work from for each set we redefine what that house means within the context of that set uh, now we have more general notes on a separate document about what the houses are in general and what their general themes are but picking from that document and being like okay in this set logos is going to be more about archiving cards than drawing cards and being like, cool, so what implications does that have? What opportunities does that provide us? So we create almost a sub-color pie for every set before we start design with an idea of what that house is going to do, what features of that house in particular we're drawing out, and then we'll move forward from there. But we're making a new house. Like We have to build up that base document. Right. And the first thing I usually like to think about in that position is what is the core play pattern of that house? What is the core theme? For example, uh, 
Saurians are about push your luck. They're about taking risks and and uh, playing hard. I like which, to call them dino pinatas. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and so like, so do you do you guys get that sense when you play Saurians? Yep. No, there's definitely games I've lost where, like, you kind of forget bounce is really powerful now with the upgrades since a bounce will not destroy a creature. So all of a sudden that uh, Imperial Scudum Dino that's holding like eight amber gets bounced back to your hand. And that eight amber goes to your opponent and you're just like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Oopsie poopsie. I, I, I uh, listened to your the really fun episode on Keyfort that you were on and you talked a little bit about how the value proposition uh, for whether or not to exalt is a little different as you kind of go up in rarity. So I feel like on some of the common ones, it's a pretty easy choice where a lot of times it's just like, yes, there's some risk here, but it's almost always the right decision to just go ahead and get that extra benefit. Yeah, no. And, and, and again, at the common level, like that's the goal. That's the hope is that it's a little easier to make. So it means more decks are playable. And that's part of like what I was talking about earlier of playing toward the middle of that uh, bell curve. Because if you made your commons be the ones that are more risky, well, then there's a higher chance your deck is bad. Right. That's it. So that's actually uh, a great segue to another question we have on, uh, which is I've been really interesting in how you determine. And I think you just, you're just speaking to it a little bit now but how you determine what's going to be a common versus, you know, rare. And, you know, in in so many other games, the most powerful epic effects are, you know, mythic rare cards or or whatever. Whereas in Keyforge, you know, we've seen some of these just incredible, awesome, super fun effects, like library access is a great example of one. And it's actually at the common slot. Uh, So it's sort of, seems to turn that on its head. So I, I was just wondering how you think about that in the design process. Can you can you restate the question more succinctly? Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, tend to ramble a little bit. <laughs> so I'm just curious how... I just, want to, I just want to be clear. Yeah. I just want to be clear. So the question is, uh, how do you decide what's going to be, or what rarity slot you're going to put any given card? So like at the core of that question is uh, a discussion about complexity. And the way players will cogitate any particular card or effect. And overall, we don't want Keyforge to become overly complex because that means it's hard to play and it can, it can push away players that are otherwise very enthusiastic about it. And because of the unique deck nature of the game, we have a, a wider audience that we want to feel welcome playing Keyforge. So by pushing complexity to higher rarities, we keep decks simpler. We keep interactions simpler, and it helps keep the game moving. Now, power level does factor in a degree, but it should be possible to get some of the very best cards at common because, well, the very best cards are fun to play with. They're the ones you want to see in your deck list. And so if you see them more often, you're going to enjoy the game more. You're going to enjoy those decks more. And you also have a higher chance of getting one of those really fun, cool decks. So it's it's a very complex question when you ask, like, what rare? why is this card this rarity? Because it could be for 
uh, any number of reasons. Uh, that's really fascinating to hear because I think as players who you know are very invested in this game, I mean, heck, this is episode 32 of a podcast exclusively about Keyforge. Uh, sometimes I think we lose sight of, you know, that question of like accessibility. Like, I, you know, where we're thinking about like the competitive game, like diving into the meta. So like that power level is sort of the first and foremost thing we think about. But of course, on the design end, it makes total sense that complexity would be first and foremost in making those decisions. So yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And another, another angle that can come into it is how much utility a card has in card effect that is more general like can be used anytime can tend to go at a lower rarity than say an effect uh like let's say a card that that hoses other another houses like directly um like uh like exactly take that smarty pants that's a rare card because well the number of games it's going to be relevant in is lower so like it, it, you don't want to see it as much, but you're gonna want some decks that have it because, well, if your buddy's got a logo deck that's just kicking your butt, <laughs> you want to be able to go, cool. Let me take my take that Sparney Pants deck, and and I'll mess you up. <laughs> that's yeah, makes sense to me. Uh, so when you're designing a new house for a new set, or not even just a new house, but just a house for a new set. Do you start by making the new cards first, or do you choose which reprints are coming Uh, forward? So what we usually like to do is we get a big list of reprints that we like, and this is way more than we're going to be able to put in the set. We do that before we start initial design. Then we do all of our initial design with this larger pool of like nebulous, what are we going to reprint, what aren't we? Then as we're going back through and putting the set together, uh, we're drawing both from a list of new cards and from our reprints, trying to hit our reprint quotas because we like to hit a certain number of reprints. One, just because of uh, you know the new context those cards can bring, which is so interesting. And two, because it's fun to see you know those cards that you're familiar with even in that new context. Uh, so it's it's kind of kind of a big combination. All right. Next question. So we've noticed the tension, a.k.a. the narrative arc of a game of Keyforge has shifted between sets. Is this something that intentionally comes about in the design process? For example, in Coda and AOA, the game has a rising tension until a board white pits. Then it falls, and then the rising tension again as the boards build back up. Where with Worlds Collide, it seems like um, there's more ways to affect key costs as opposed to just stealing and capturing. So we've got Key Lock, The Quiet Anvil, General Order to take care of um, boards, Peace Accord to prohibit fighting, um, so that you have these temporary bursts of pressure. Is this an intentional design, or is this just something that comes about by some happy accident? The Ben, the Bob Ross of game design? <laughs> well, uh, it's not a happy accident. We want each set to feel different from one another. You want to have new experiences. I mean, Keyforge at its heart is a game about new experiences. It's a game about discovery. And so having different play environments is, is really critical because you want a set one deck to feel different than a set two deck that feels different than a set three deck that list feels different than a four five, six, seven, eight deck. Like all, all, all of those want to be a unique experience. They want to make 
we want to make players question what they know about the game and, and think differently. And, you know, there's going to be sets that some people like better than others. And, and we realize that, but we want them all to be fun and engaging and different. And I think overall that's going to create a more healthy and fun game for our community. Very cool. Indeed. I think along with the, you know, creating all these different experiences and, you know, we keep talking about it throughout the course of this interview that like variety and discovery is such an important aspect uh, as of to what you're trying to achieve uh, when developing Keyforge. It strikes me that you are also creating an incredibly difficult challenge of play testing all the possible interactions and combinations between houses and the different spectrum of what the house is trying to do within one set. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you play test and, and, and try to sort of manage that massive chaos? Uh, so yeah, I can talk a little bit. I can't go deep, deep into it because sure. Cause, yeah. Uh, whatever corporate secrets when drunk, whatever you can but, say, uh, <laughs> You know, we, we do do a lot of different types of testing. Um, some of that involves just having random decks that people play against each other to just get a sense and feel for what, what's the average Keyforge experience. If I just pick up three, four decks from this set, how, how is it going to feel? We also do testing that focuses on, okay, here's, here's all the cards in the set. What are the most broken type of interactions that you can find? What are the scenarios that you can set up that break the game? So, <laughs> I want to be on that team. Check out check out our website. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy the uh, really edge case yeah. combos. Um, yeah, I don't know. It just it makes me happy pulling them off. Seeing my opponent. Well, most time I'm not seeing my opponent's face. <laughs> you, are, group. you already said it. Yeah, TCO. <laughs> no I'm, I'm fully admitting that i like to like ring other people's funds with these weird combos so um yeah jenka Gen martian generosity key abduction being one of my favorite combos in the game i've tried out various different jenka decks and had a blast with a lot of them and still have a few of them so yeah yeah definitely um so let's see here what was the most challenging card to design Ooh. in worlds collide let's bring it you know, there's, there's actually going to be a Crucible cast on uh, Saturday that's uh, talking about this card, but I'll, I'll talk about it here too. Um, but Buzzle, Buzzle was the hardest card to to figure out. It's it's a really really cool card, but man, the number of interaction, like just the number of different versions of Buzzle that we went <laughs> through was ridiculous. Um, there were some that were focused just on getting Amber. There was some, like the final version is just about fighting, but like we went through iteration and iteration after iteration of puzzle just to get him just in the right spot. No, I've seen, and I have used him to great effect to get rid of those creatures in your deck. That's kind of a middling deck. So that way, the next time you reshuffle and go through the deck, the deck becomes a much better with some of those kind of not as powerful creatures, not being amongst your draws and i've seen that used to great effect both for and against me so yeah that that card is really great i really like this in the purging in uh worlds collide yeah. it's been a lot of yeah. fun it's 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 again it's a really cool different take that uh makes makes this feel special 
Yeah, this is definitely... I know there's quite a few uh, very passionate, primarily disc players in our Discord. It seems like that's one of the houses uh, that maybe inspires some sort of like passion or loyalty more so uh, than some of the other ones, which I think really speaks to... The... It's all of us <laughs> MTG control players trying to assert that control. Are, the spikes or whatever. Is... Uh... Oh, definitely. You know, and we, we think about the different types of players that come to Keyforge in the same way that you have like a Spike, Johnny, Timmy. We don't have any particular terms for them, but that, that sense of like people come to our game for a reason and we should understand. Maybe we can explore that a little bit in some of these future episodes. Just put that in the back of my head for some potential episode topics in the future. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So maybe we can help you. We can help you guys come up with some terminology. And sadly, this was the abrupt moment that our interview came to an end. This was certainly disappointing because not only did it leave a few listener-submitted questions unanswered, but we didn't even have the opportunity to thank Brad properly for coming on. So I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you to Brad Andres for so graciously giving our humble little independent podcast a bit of his time and for coming on to share such great insights about this wonderful, innovative, and fun game. Brad wanted us to share his Twitter handle with our audience, and we are delighted to do so. So please join us in following Brad at Darnabus Prime on Twitter, and you can also find this handle in the show notes of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the interview that we were able to record through the technical errors and before the abrupt end. As always, it is the incredible sanctimonious community that we do this for. Dan and I are, of course, always engaging with folks on our Discord as well as on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for the show, we absolutely love to hear it. I also want to remind you that this show is not possible without our Patreon backers. I will be working on a written sanctimonious year in review uh, post that will be going out to our backers and anyone else interested to reflect on this show's journey so far and to talk about some exciting ideas and news for the year ahead. If you're able, please consider joining our Patreon. We really appreciate any and all support. Additionally, we have incredible playmats available on Inked Gaming and awesome t-shirts and other merch on Redbubble that I encourage you to check out for perhaps a little Christmas present to yourself because you deserve it. All these links are available in the show notes of this podcast. Finally, before signing off on this Christmas Eve, let me just wish everyone a happy holidays and a happy new year on behalf of myself, Dan, Alex, and everyone else who makes this show, community, and community team possible. Until 2020, you've been listening to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast. Thank you.